Drive-by Cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello, hello and welcome. This is Drive-by Cinema, Series 3, Episode 29, with my co-host, Paul. Hi, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here, as ever. And me, Rick. The 231st highest-rated movie review podcast in South Africa. Of movies that we watch so that you don't have to. Don't have to. (laughs) (laughs) I was watching, sorry, I was watching The Lost Boys the other night, okay. Uh, There were two Corys in it. This is, of course, Corey Heim, who's now, sadly, not... Corey Feldman. And Corey Fell... Feldman, isn't it? Feldman, yeah. Who, of course, is now, like... A, or how it was, has been a, a self-promotional pop star. Okay, I imagine he's like two hundred thirty-first most popular kind of in South Africa. Yeah. Michael Jackson imitator in South Africa also. <laughs> but he's not one to hide his light beneath a bushel, and neither should we be. I, I is it a bushel? Sad. Bushel? I don't know. I think that that we have had one download in South Africa in the last sort of year. And that takes us to number 231, everybody. So that does suggest, if any of our listeners have the slightest uh, appreciation... Please, download us several times. No, just simply rate us on on Apple Podcasts or on Podcast Addict or on whatever podcast thing you have. Just click a number of stars equating to your pleasure in the podcast... And let's see what happens in other territories. Who knows? I don't know how many it's going to take. Maybe not so many. Oh, wow. In terms of this uh, review funnel process, we might suddenly see some sort of massive insight and be able to take that funnel funnel manipulation to our drop shipping business on Amazon and make millions, everybody. So you never know. So do help us with that. We don't just review movies, of course. We also discuss important topics like... Is there such thing as a TV detector van? Yeah, that was a very important topic. I think people do need to understand and know about that. It's one of considerable fascination for people in the United Kingdom and probably nowhere else in the world, because I'm not sure anyone else in the world has the unique way in which... There is one or two more territories. There are one or two more territories that do have a TV licensing system, but I can't remember what they are. What, former colonies kind of Potentially, yeah. Because I think in Germany they just have a, a, everyone pays a part of their tax just goes towards the national broadcaster. Uh, I think in in Holland as well. I think it just comes out of normal tax. Well, the Germans do something really weird. Like uh, if you're a foreigner, you declare your religion right uh, as you go to work there. Like let's say you think you say you're Catholic or Protestant, and then you get your pay packet. You might think. Why is there three percent missing? They'll automatically deduct three percent of your wages and give it to the religion of your choice. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you want to be an atheist, then, don't you? In terms, yeah, I'm not sure what they denote, donate to then. If you say you're an atheist, seems a bit a bit odd, doesn't it, for Germany to be keeping a record of what religion everybody yeah. is? <laughs> so, so I mean, I'm not a fan of the BBC licensing system. I think there are other ways to finance a national broadcast. Are you a fan of the BBC, though? Do you think uh, less so? I think it's just become a bit kind of... I much prefer it to be a national broadcaster that sticks to a quite limited, quite dull remit. You know, the kind of stuff that you don't have to watch and you don't watch, but it's there. Rather like uh, a radar, kind of uh, a naval radar uh, centre stuck out on some coast somewhere. 
or you think it should be more shipping forecast? I think it should be more shipping forecasts and more and kind of and less what uh, Strictly Come Dancing and Mrs Brown Brian's boys. I think the, I mean, it has a charter, doesn't it? I'm not sure if Entertain is part of that. Uh, I just think it's you know, it's just something we don't Entertaining need. Entertaining is part of the charter. Is Entertain part of the charter or not? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't think it's... I think we need to recharter it. It's just not relevant, you know. We don't need a national broadcaster to give us light entertainment anymore. And we spend an awful lot of the BBC's money doing that. I would like to see it go back to become something more like BBC schools or, you know, financing uh, not just the Open University but other kind of online universities, that kind of thing. I'd prefer to see it have a more inform and educate remit than it does at the moment. But that would require some kind of funding. Yeah, and I think it should be taxated kind of thing. Not through a licence. I think it's a silly idea. You know, if it's going to be national broadcaster, it needs to be available to all, whether or not, you know, they've paid a licence fee. Because I once went on a date with a young lady from China. Yeah. Young lady, what am I talking about? You know, a woman from China. I think you could say young lady. You're a young man. I don't think... If I'm wearing a fedora, yes, and I have a cane, I could say a young lady. But anyway, uh, we went out on a date. It didn't go very well. I didn't get a second date. Let's just put it that way. I don't know. Maybe it's to do with the fact... She was trying to sell you Bitcoin. During dinner. No, no. (laughs) No. No, that was long before Bitcoin existed, I think. But during dinner, well, she was unhappy with having to pay a TV licence fee. Did you not tell you don't have to? No one's ever going to find out. Well, I didn't say that. Obviously, I mean, it is a bit strange that a foreign national coming over here and studying here, whatever, should be encouraged to contribute to our national... But we'll slow down a minute. She gets free emergency service and free, just complete free health treatment as well. Slow down a bit, Richard. That's exceptionally generous. I'm with you, and I think there's a certain irony... And our museums are free, honestly. Someone coming from the People's Republic of China telling me that a, a licence fee for the television is a lot of government overreach. Do you know what? When, That's sort of hilarious. Do you know, when we used to go there, like, 20 years ago, before we kind of become a bit more liberal, there were foreigner and foreigners' entrance fees to the museums and, and local entrance fees, and it was often five times more expensive. <laughs> so I, I'm not having it. She's complaining about free museums and free health service. No. She, she wasn't, Good. to be fair, complaining Good. about those Good. things. <laughs> Good. But I remember the conversation <laughs> was quite heated because I didn't really understand the point she was making, her objection to the whole idea. I can see why she doesn't want to pay it. I just didn't understand well, I think, why you she know, was... you, I mean, If you've lived in the UK for a while, you become ingrained to the ways here. you know. And I think the BBC is something that... It, it, I, the problem I have is that people want to support the continuation of the BBC and therefore want to support the continuation of the way that it does things at the moment. And I think those are two separate issues, aren't they? I'd be happy to see... I'd be happy to see the BBC continue with Light Entertainment, but I want to see some adverts on there financing it. So, you know, I do think the BBC One no, should move... No, no way. Yes. BBC Hang one on. Sh- hey, stop. Let me finish. BBC One should move towards, uh, one, sponsorship of its programmes, and two, about one or two minutes of advertising in each hour. Is that yes. the best thing about the BBC that there's no adverts? I'm saying one or two minutes, Richard, and it would make a lot of money. So there we go. And it wouldn't. They make it wouldn't take. They make a lot of money selling. Oh well, people wouldn't pay for Channel Four, Channel Five advertising. Then one tough look. Two, that's not true. Like like our housing, we don't have enough advertising in this country. We don't have enough advertising. No, we don't. Mental. Neon looks (laughs) beautiful at night. We need to fill our cities and suburbs with with neon. I'm all for. I'm with you on that point. Absolutely. 
We should have uh, blimps with adverts on them. Over there we go. In the sky, that kind of thing. And but neon, not on the BBC. What do we call the neon airmen? What do we call the airmen outside garages? Blimps? No, the wacky, waving arm, inflatable arm dude. Wavy man. Let's get neon wavy man. We can do this. Come on, everybody. No, so yeah, I, I'm a reformist when it comes to the BBC. However, I do believe uh, in maintaining its original charter with some quorum amendments. Anyway, nothing to do with any of this. Listener Adam was corresponding oh, hi, Adam. with me about TV detective vans. Does he know something that we don't? He said that he has seen a TV detective van. I, well, I think I have imagined I've seen one, but many, many moons ago. Has he seen no, one No, I've seen one. I've definitely seen one. But recently? I don't know, five, ten years really? ago. Really? That recent? Wow. It was parked on a motorway overhead bridge, you know, over the motorway. Presumably, as you're going in or out of the city on your commute, you see it. It's just performance art, isn't it? That's mm. what it's. That's all it is. It's just to say, you know, watch out. We're going to catch you. Adam sent me a website. You take a look at that. See what you think. <laughs> okay, are we back on, Rich? We're back, yes. Paul. Yeah. Well, Bookman Hardy Associates, okay, the people that apparently make the TV detective on Gubbings. It's a very short description. It is, okay. Since 1997, they've been making big uns. Since then, they've learned how to make little uns, okay, uh, which are now, like, portable and handheld, I guess. The work is subject to confidentiality agreements, and we are unable to divulge any technical details. How convenient. Then we get a product image of, essentially, an oscilloscope or a voltmeter. So there we go. It's got direction and distance. But also, but look at this detail. It says, uh, using state-of-the-art techniques to detect modern digital TVs, both in real time and stored program content. Mm -hmm. What, so that if you put a Doctor Who DVD on... Somehow this so, he knows. This is incredible. <laughs> I think what it's saying is, you know, when you log on to the BBC iPlayer, you have to give an email address, don't you? Yeah. I think essentially they're tracing email addresses to IP addresses, aren't they? Yeah, you would don't need be, a handheld detector. Would that be doable? That. Kind of. But, I mean, quite often your IP address can change. Yeah. So it might be a shared pool. So they'd have to go to the ISP and ask you know, which subscriber had this IP address at this time. It's got nothing to do with a handheld detector, obviously. it's All every, all of this you'd do from your desk, wouldn't yeah. you? And then you'd send another letter out to the postcode you already know doesn't have a... So we're calling Holcomb on this, I think. I still am. It's Holcomb. I mean, it must be pure Holcomb. But effective, you know. I mean, why park your TV detective on a, on a bridge across a really busy motorway? Well, it's just there for presence and intimidation effect, isn't it? But they don't have very many powers to actually find out that you're no, not on TV. They because can't actually go in your house, come into they? your house. No. And yet, there's something like 20,000 convictions or something. <laughs> something like that. It's amazing. How did they convict people? I guess people admit to it. Yeah, Is that right? Or? I, think, I think people break under pressure. Like the way in, on American immigration forms, visa waiver forms, it asks if you're, you're there to commit sedition right, or terrorist <laughs> acts. Now, <laughs> the other thing is that a Freedom of Information Act discovered that there has never been any conviction based on evidence obtained by TV detectives. There's our answer, I think, then, yeah. But, I mean, there's all, this, is, this is what I mean about last week when I was saying there's knowledge you can never know, because here's what they'd say. They'd say, yeah, well, we can't use that evidence because if we did you'd have to explain to the court how it worked 
for them to ah. assess the evidence. That's their, that would be their excuses, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. So, Paul, what did you discover about last week's other conundrum about fruit machines or slots in the UK? Not a lot. I did a bit of digging and I didn't get any further. Okay. Except I need to clarify some language. I think at the start point, we got off in different directions because I was talking about slot machines in the UK sense of the word. Okay, You were talking about it in the uh, American sense of the word, which means fruit machine. But in the UK, slot machine doesn't mean fruit machine. Uh, slot machine means any machine that could be a fruit machine or a game of skill or a game of chance. And so when I was saying some slot machines could be regulated according to their indicated payout and the payout, historical payout, I wasn't talking about fruit machines. So I think that's why we kind of disagree with what I was saying. Because I wasn't really talking about fruit machines. I did find out that you're completely correct about American fruit machines. Is it is a completely either random number or pseudo random number generator that can't be toggled with. And it pays out what it pays out. Whether that's historically above or below, it never changes. So you're absolutely right about the American ones. Also, what makes a game of chance in America is kind of like the silhouette opposite of what makes a game of skill in the uk in the uk any amount of skill that will allow you to win the game uh and no amount of chance that would declaratively stop you from taking part in the game makes it a game of skill in america any amount of chance kind of makes it a gambling machine huh that's interesting Mm. I I looked into it as well, and I discovered that it's really, really confusing. It is. Like, I mean, you need to be a lawyer in the industry to understand it. Like, there's loads of rules about what machines can and cannot be in different categories of machine. So, I think there's a concept of something called skill with prizes. Yes. SWP. Yeah. And they kind of sidestep a lot of this stuff because they're skill in the UK chance games. In the UK, in America, it's quite difficult for them to say they're not gambling. Yeah, I can see that. Meanwhile, there are gambling machines in the UK, and they come in one of a number of classes, like A, B, C, D. That's right, yeah. And there's different, even within those, there's different levels. The thing I read said that there are basically no class A's in the UK. I think that's like the kind of thing you see in Vegas, the progressive network slot machines. That's the other thing, of course. Uh, now, of course, they're arranged in a carousel and they're networked together. Some yeah, of them yeah. are designed to pay out more than punters put in to, to have a positive payout rate. The majority of them have, you know, a 70 or 80% payout rate. And one or two of them have, you know, a 40 or 50% payout rate to get back the money on the actual slot machines that pay out more than they take him. So there's the idea of the, not the chance of winning, but the chance of the chance of winning, okay? Which I think was in the movie we discussed. It was like, you know, if your sample size is too small, uh, although the odds are in your favour, you might not actualise enough those chances to come out on top. So here they pull them in a what's called a carousel, a network carousel. And overall, the carousel has, it's programmed to pay out at whatever percentage. But individual machines there will attract people in, uh, with the with the obvious fact that they're flashing and playing out more, you know, you've watched it for an hour or two and it's paying out more, it's pretty obvious. But then that machine will not be the the high payout machine the day afterwards. And the carousel can just be triggered to make other make other machines in the cluster pay out more than than than, than average. So it's it's fascinating how it all works. One thing was repeatedly clear in all of the regulations that I read though, and that is 
the machines have to tell you exactly what you're getting into all the way along. So they have to say what the payout rate is. Oh. Th- th- there's even a bit that says, you know, if, if you do this, that, and the other, you have to tell the player that there is little chance of them winning. <laughs> so, I, And what they mean by that is anything less than about 25... It's not very high, but or not very low. I think it's less than about 25% chance of winning. They have to give that kind of, you know, those very low odds here kind of warning. Whoa. Mostly somewhere on the machine there will be uh, an explanation of exactly what, what you're playing and, you know, what you can expect to win and all of that stuff. And, you know, the important thing to remember is a lot of the industry is completely upfront about this and it doesn't seem to matter. People still play it even though they're being told exactly how much they're going to lose. And you don't need to be clever. The odds are in house's favour already. They don't need to trick you. There's no scam needed here. Players play, and they earn money. That's how it works. Sure. They're just going to make it playable, i.e., you know, 78% payout returns for two days whilst you're there, and empty pockets kind of thing. I think if they're too generous, like if it's 95% payout, they're not... I mean, people are going to have money left in their pockets at the end of, at the, end of the holiday, aren't they? And so there's kind of an optimum level of of uh, parasitic behaviour here, isn't there? So Let us, Paul, mm. listen to some of your music. Not the trumpet I heard you playing earlier. <laughs> I think you're referring to my blow my nose. But there we go. So, right, Richard, we have to get on to today's or this week's movie, which was more anime fodder, wasn't it? Drive-by cinema fans from the early days may know that Drive-by Cinema started out as two blokes looking at science and horror-based movies and laughing at the poor science and poor movie-making choices. Mm-hmm. It has become... Two aging guys watching anime, misty-eyed, wistfully. Wistfully wishing they lived life a little bit faster and a little bit younger. What was the name of this week's film, Paul? Your suggestion. This was your name. Your name. From about 2016. A film which beat, I think it beat Spirited Away in the Japanese box office. Did it? For an animated film, certainly. Whoa. Paul, you said that you had a weird experience here because... You've been invited by someone to go to their house to watch no, this no, 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 because no, they no, 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 had no, translated. No, no, no. Okay, so let me explain the story. So, so it was strange. Like uh, Netflix and not very much chill had happened previously, and then they said, "Oh, I'm buying you like a projector so we can watch a movie on your wall." But they're buying you a projector. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like they're like sixty quid projectors these days oh okay not a very good one then yeah not a very good one because uh my landlord was kind of weird and i just really couldn't get through to him it took me four weeks to get the boiler in the in the bathroom changed and uh, right. i just the ideas of i i replaced my with my own aircon you know the aircon wasn't working so i just paid for people to come and get me an aircon so i, I couldn't get a tv aerial in the house my TV box wasn't working for some reason. What would be the point of getting a TV aerial anyway? I don't know, but my TV box wasn't You'd have working. to pay Chinese television license fees. <laughs> so my TV box, you know, wasn't working. I don't know why. Well, your cable box. What? Why wasn't my cable working? No I cable that You hadn't paid the bill? I, I just really I can't remember. Anyway, so there wasn't much chance to watch TV on the TV kind of thing. So that's why they said, hey, we'll get a projector. I can watch the movie. 
And then they said, this is like an amazing movie. And by the way, I've written my own subtitles for it. Written their own subtitles. Yeah, and they said, and they said, well, this is like this is like so us. This is like me and you. (laughs) I don't know what was going on there, Uh, and it did make me a bit frightened. Not as frightened as the week week before, where I think we watched Resident Evil one to five or something. Right. I tend to attract crazies. You know what I mean. But think about translating this is that it's a Japanese movie. Yeah. And you were in China, yeah. so was it, it Japanese or? Well, it's tra- it was translated into Chinese and into English. Oh right, okay, okay. So, but I, I, I mean, because I, I wanted to find out, like, how do you time it? Because what you're doing is you're running up, you're running some sort of, I guess, some program, aren't you? Some timing program that runs at the same time as your as your original video file. I think subtitle files are quite straightforward. I think they're just like a time. And a bit of text. So all you ha- all you have to do is watch the movie uh, and then s- press stop, and then it, when you're writing the titles, it should it should mark it should timestamp that automatically. Is that right? I think so. There must be some software that helps you do right. this. But I think that's, that, it, that's I mean, they wouldn't tell me why how they did it because I was really interested to find out. And it's like, no, that's a state secret. You're not finding out how we do that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, really annoyed me. Did I think that really set the tip tone for me not enjoying this movie because they wouldn't explain. The technical details I was interested in about how you get the the process of encoding the titles so they come up at the right time in the movie without kind of putting the movie in the subtitles and re-recording them over each other kind of together thing. Because I understand that's not how it happens. You've got a file for your movie, you've got a file for your subtitles. Yeah, hmm. I mean, nowadays, yeah. I mean, uh, obviously it would have been different in analogue days. But nowadays a computer can just composite... A subtitle file yeah, with the video. I wanted to know that, and they wouldn't explain it, yeah. so I was really no. angry. It's interesting. So I, I got around that by pouring the drinks <laughs> and making sure everybody right. was drunk instead. Okay, okay. But underneath it, I was seething. I was furious. I suppose, though, the act of translating a work is quite a deep level of Appreciation. You know, understanding yeah. of that work and, and interacting with it. Mm-hmm. But that said, whatever this movie might be, it's not particularly deep in its dialogue and no. the text of the film. I don't think. No. I think it's quite straightforward. No, I mean there might be themes. And the stuff. plot is the plot is quite nice and intricate. It's nice, absolutely. Yeah, it's interestingly done. But it's not like poetry, is it? It's not grand prose. I don't certainly not in the English dub. No, no, it? it's not. It's not. I mean, but I mean they are quite grand ideas for the adolescent audiences intended for it, aren't they? Really, it's not like. You know, when they translated Asterisk from French, they had to come up with all these English puns that work just as well in English. True. Yeah. It's not like that, is it? That's not the that's not the scale of the translation problem. That's difficult because of course French French there's a thing about French called the second level, isn't there? Or the third level about what's meant and what can be inferred. Okay. You know, Parisian French is very big on this. So I imagine Asterix was written in the same kind of way. I have no idea. Never heard of this before. Oh. Can you give me an example? of? Well, I think in English it's like saying so much without saying it kind of thing. But the French are very like big. irony. No, it's more about saying it in a very, in a very uh, terse and very efficient way. It's not necessarily about being your tone being kind of wry or sour or ironic. It's more about being able to say something with a level of efficiency, you know. 
saying something in fewer words, basically. That could have humorous tones or it could have ironic tones, but not necessarily. It's more about the fact you're, you you have a, a face meaning and then uh, an actual meaning behind your words kind of thing. Okay, accepted. I don't think there was any any of that kind of depth in this particular film, though. Oh. So again, didn't seem like there was much it's to get It's not French, into, so why would there be? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> did you watch it? Dubbed or subtitled? I, I watched it in Japanese with with Chinese and English subtitles written by written by potential paramour. No, no, this time round. Oh, this time it? I watched it in Japanese. Was there really the choice? I don't think there was. Was there? Huh. Do you know? I can't remember. There's a live action version of it being made in the moment. Actually, really? Yeah, by Paramount, oh, that... Paramount Pictures. Well, that's strange because one of the things about this film is how amazing it looks. Yeah. Spirited Away, I said, was beautiful every frame. This is a little bit better, isn't it? This is HD, isn't it? It's like turned it's up to 11. It's fairly incredible, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. really beautiful. Astonishing. It is. Yeah, I'm not sure we need a live-action version. But I have heard this described as one of the greatest love stories ever. Mm-hmm. I can see why your paramour might have tried to seduce you using it. <laughs> I wasn't against it, you know. I was trying to oil it with the alcohol. It just never really happened. I think Moscow's eyes got really annoyed because they wouldn't explain how they had the subtitles. Didn't want to unweave the, the rainbow, did they? I, I could be stopped, you know. Uh, so, yeah, our comic meteor didn't really happen that night. So we have to explain the comic meteor thing and the whole plot of the film. Yeah, not before we say, this grossed uh, 60 times a budget. Incredible. Incredible. I, uh, I think they made it for about £8 million, pounds, £8 million pounds, though, so not that expensive to make either. So a guy and a girl awake... Unable to remember their dreams. Yeah. And they both seem to have dreamt about star falling at the start of the movie. You're not really sure how this fits into everything at the time. The guy is called... Kaki. Taki, I Taki, think. yeah. The, the girl is called Mitsuha. It seems that he's woken up after a dream, after an intense dream. He's woken up in a girl's body. Yeah. And he wakes up and does what every boy who's woken up in a girl's body would do. <laughs> would do. And, and has done. That's feel, feel the boobas. Feel your boobas, yeah. <laughs> The sister of the girl whose body he's woken up in, if you're following along, comes into her sister's room here and, you know, he's shocked that her, her older sister is feeling her own boobs. <laughs> the director of the film, whose name I can't remember and probably didn't even look up properly, I saw that he said that he was sort of embarrassed by this bit, by the fact that he had his, the boy star of the movie, kind of feeling his own boobs which are the body of the girl. Yeah. He's a, it's very confusing. Makoto it? Shinkai. I've just found out his name. Well, he said that it was, you know, that was a pre-Me Too thing, and it was it was a bit of an icky thing. But it strikes me that everybody knows that if you woke up in the body of the opposite sex... You would check it out. Yeah. You'd be fascinated by the sexual aspect, surely. So they, they do a bit of that. It's not really very heavy-handed, is it? No, I mean, she wakes up and does the same thing, doesn't she? She's like, oh, she does do there's something down there, something in the way. And there we go. She goes and eats breakfast from a rice cooker. Yeah. There is a town announcement for a mayoral election, and we learn that I think she is the mayor's daughter. She is, yeah. He's up for real. election But she and her sister don't live with her father. They live with grandma, maternal grandma, who's not keen on their father at all. And they live somewhere in on a coastal kind of bit of Japan, I think. Is it coastal? Or yeah, fairly rural coast. anyway. Rural, it's certainly yeah. rural. Outside of Tokyo, it's quite a small kind of villagey town. Her family and her grandmother is very religious with the Shinto Buddhist kind of tradition, and they do all of these ritual 
dances and folk dances. Lots of names really... here that I wrote down, but I don't remember which is which. Okay. <laughs> Mayugora, Musubi, and also the very, very famous Kuchikami Sake, which is sake made from spit. Yeah. Yeah, they do a ritual dance, don't they? And then they take a mouthful of rice, <laughs> spit, they spit it. it into a bowl, and leave the bowl, and eventually that that will form sake. Not just any sake, this is holy sake. That is descriptive of how humans discovered alcohol, isn't it? It must be. Potentially. There must be yeah. some magic. Like bread. Bread and alcohol are the two things that seem completely impossible to have invented. And you might think, well, are, are Japanese fe- fe- festivals necessarily that kooky? Yeah, they are. Okay. Uh, like, that's, that's not a stretch, really, of the imagination or a stretch of reality. Like, I remember the Naked Man Festival. I'm sure I've spoken about it before. Like, uh, my Japanese friends were like, we're going to see a festival. We've got to come along. And they drove me from Osaka or Okayama to somewhere else on the other side of Osaka, I think it was. Uh, and we went to the Naked Man Festival. Like, uh, they weren't particularly good English speakers, so they didn't really tell me what kind of festival it was going to be. Uh, what it is, right, is essentially 25,000 naked men, right, uh, in teams <laughs> of 8 to 16. Uh, right. And the mayor throws some chopsticks or something like that into them. The teams must fight over the chopstick, like, you know, old English villagers fought over a football. And the team must try to get the chopsticks and take them back to the mayoral palace, uh, naked in the streets. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And were you merely spectating? Well, so he starts you... off with the mayor throwing these like chopstick things into a crowd of twenty five thousand men, kind of like a stadium thing. It's actually a temple. It's a, it's a stadium built next to the temple specifically for this festival. <laughs> yeah, and it's just okay. a huge violent melee of naked men, kind of <laughs> grabbing chopsticks. Yeah, holy chopsticks. They're not chopsticks. They're holy sticks. Okay. And this, it's a team game. Yeah, you team up. You know, you really beat the crap out of each other to get the chopsticks for your team. Like, if another team right. has the chopsticks, then you start beating them up and grab the chopsticks off them. What are you allowed to do to them? Well, I, I saw gouging, all that kind of stuff. I don't think they grab, te- grab or squeeze testicles. I think the genitals are fully on display. Are off are limits. Off limits, yeah. Uh, and you were a spectator to this, not I was. Now, in Japan, they do those kind of like little glass uh, sake things from from uh dispensers or from you know 7-elevens and vending machines vending machines yeah yeah, and they brought a few of those i was doing those yeah okay because it's quite a cold night i seem to remember (laughs) that's uh not ideal so who won did you did you bet on a team because later we went to the mayoral kind of palace temple thing where they brought the chopsticks and we, we found out the team had one uh, but we got in trouble for not taking our shoes off when we walked into the temple area. That's all I remember. Well, you were with local Japanese people, surely? Yes, they were. I mean, like they were showing me because I was foreign, right? I don't think they know very much about religion or stuff like that. Right. Okay. So they were as naive as you they were, were in many respects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No different from here, right? We have strange rituals like Morris dancing and that cheese rolling. Cheese shit rolling, yeah, would be similar kind of thing we've got similar here. Similar kind of cracker type thing. Well, football, Crackers. generally, you know. I mean, football, like you might say this is a weird tradition, but then football is an evolved tradition of a very similar kind, you know. Yes, it is, isn't it? So, so we're led to believe. The one confusing thing about the start of this movie is at some point, the girl whose body is being possessed by the boy Taki. Yeah. 
stops being tacky and yeah. starts becoming her again. I wasn't quite sure when that happened. Yeah, this happens several times where they tr- transition, transition, they double transition back to the person they are. Or like they present their, when they're in the other person's body, it's like a possession or a dream. They come out of that dream and then the other person's like who they're supposed to be. I don't think that was quite clearly signposted enough for the viewer, was it? It got a bit confusing about who was where. But I think it's supposed to be a sort of dreamlike experience for the audience as well. Yeah. It's acceptable, but there is a point where it's obvious after a while that you're not looking at a boy in her body anymore. You're looking at her, yes, and she's shocked by things that her friends are telling her that she did yesterday. Now, what did she do the day before? She kicked an easel in art class in, in a boyish kind of uh, stuff and fit, <laughs> and, and that was it, really. What did he do when she was him? Uh, well, he 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 really has a job as a waiter. Okay, uh, she spent all his money on a coffee and some sort of pineapple tart. Uh, it's hard to wait waitering money. And then went to the job as a wait, waiter and didn't do very well as a waiter. That was it, really. So quite cutesy to begin with the first twenty five minutes. She's trying to help him get with the waitress that all of the waiters. The head waitress, went yeah, yeah, and so she's being. Quite charming when she's in Taki's body. Yeah, she's showing she's showing the head waitress that he's got a feminine side because she's darning and knitting and fixing up the head waitress's ripped skirt. Yeah, ripped skirt. Now that was, that was a comedy moment, wasn't it? A rather unpleasant customer had slashed her skirt with a knife, which is quite an aggressive thing to do, isn't it? Yeah. Taki, with Mitsuo's spirit in him, darns rather cutely and repairs having, the skirt. Having humorously yeah. said, take off your skirt. Yes. So, because right. she forgot that she's in a boy's body, and so, you know, those words from him might not have been so well received. But it all turns out okay, doesn't it? At the start, they're quite confused about what's happening, but they both start keeping a journal on their phones. That's right, yeah. So that the other person will know what they've done while they were in their body. Because when they come out of this reverie, they can't. Well, they certainly can't remember what they did. They don't even have a recollection of like being in that state, do they? Or what their name was, even especially. Whoa! But they figured out that they're switching places. They start laying down some ground rules about forbidden things that they're not allowed to do, and as I say, leaving these entries on phones to remind each other so they don't look like mad people the next day. I like the way that the inevitable thing, you know, you know, the adolescents watches me will want to happen, which is they try and meet up with each other. You know, I like the way how it gradually was kind of introduced as an idea. Just generally, I, I like the wish fulfillment that's going on in this movie. I don't think it was like too obvious or anything like that. Uh, they're both getting frustrated that the other person is meddling with their love lives, aren't they? He's not all that into trying to get with this waitress. And when he has to go on the dates that she set up for him, he always fluffed it, fluffs it up anyway. One thing about this film is it does it does kind of perpetuate this the common trope, the myth, the idea, the stereotype, you know, of the dorky young guy who's not very confident. And the girl is like always on it in that sense. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she's capable of taking charge of his love life because he's kind of useless at it, sort of Serrano de Bergerac style. But I think the reality is that a young girl, a young woman, is equally as awkward and uncomfortable about navigating her love life as a young boy is. I think you're right, but I, I think really they, they really play to neurotypical ideas of gender difference here, didn't they? Like, towards the end, 
where he is possessed in possessing her body or you know he's he's a spirit inside of her and you know the kind of resolve he has to face up to the traumatic situation at the end you know his his go-getting attitude and the way he high-fives the other boy the real boy if you like uh, in the village kind of thing i thought that there was some really quite stereotypical ideas and quite stereotypical Japanese ideas about how boys should be and how girls should be uh, and it kind of reconfirmed and reinforced those rather than open them up for examination I think so now we're hearing on the news at various points about the comet Tiamat which is approaching closest approach with the earth mm-hmm. and everyone's quite excited about seeing a comet as people would be particularly when it's well this animated yes yeah, beautiful it's a beautiful comet now, they do say there's a chance it will break off and we'll get a meteor from the tail end of the comet. But I thought the tail end of the comet, comet was just ice. I thought comets were generally just ice anyway, aren't they? I think a big enough piece of ice would act as a meteor. Would it? Yeah. And I think comets can be accumulations of rock and ice, ah, I think. Just checking, everybody. Just checking. So Granny and her sister, they both go, they, they all, all three of them go and visit a shrine. It's a big shrine. It's the shrine of the big local god, and it's hidden away. On the other side of the mountain, is that right? It's in what I thought was a caldera. It is, yes. Which is the cooled crater of a volcano. So but a comet's been before. It turns out it's actually a crater from an impact site from yeah. long, long ago. They do tell you later in the movie in case it's not clear from the animation, because it, it isn't really the way it's drawn. Okay. So, uh, um, and Granny says, actually, we're crossing into the underworld here, everybody. The threads of time that I weave... Because she's always weaving at home. And They're always weaving these cords. These yeah, bracelet like friendship things. Br- these friendship, friendship bands. These <laughs> are the threads of time that our God controls. You know, When you drink water and the water becomes part of you, that's all interweaverment. Be careful now, we're going into the <laughs> underworld. And they go into the underworld, which is like a really nice little like semi-natural building cave thing where the God supposedly exists. And they're going to offer the, the spitzaki to the God. Granny's talking about the union of all things. Yeah, she's getting really deep. Yeah, so this is the most poetic bit, actually. I suppose this is Shinto Buddhist kind of cosmic deepities. Yeah, you know, Did... it's all a bit greeting cardy, isn't it? But okay. oh, not sure Richard. it means very much. Well, well, you know, it, it is a bit three hundred and sixty-five Tao greetings for your year. Yeah, okay. But I've got one of those books. I've got one of those books, and I think it's better than a Bible. If you're looking for... <laughs> oh, you, no question, is it better than the Bible? The Bible's ugly. It's awful, isn't it? You know, what? where two kinds of cloth get stoned to death? Who wants to read that of, a, of an afternoon? The stone. The stone is you. You are the stone. It is only a matter of time and water that washes away this realisation. That's a wonderful thought to be left with on January the 14th, Richard. Granny seems to be kind of recognising that sometimes Mitsuo is dreaming... Because they experience one another's lives in their dreams, don't they? That's how how they wind up in that other person's body. They do, yeah. Which tells you something about the time in this movie, actually, if you think about it. Go on. If each of them is swapping places in their dreams, yeah. that means it's not happening at exactly the same time, doesn't it? Because they'd both be asleep if it was the same time. So it must be happening at different times. Ah. <laughs> you hadn't thought about that, had you? Paul's speechless with... Suddenly. So what we're saying is, when they be, when they inhabit the spirit of the other person, they're actually time travelling at the same time. I think that's what we're saying. Yeah. Wow. I wonder how that's going to pan out in the rest of the film. I don't well, know. We'll find out. We'll find out. 
Mitsua, when he's when she is in Taki's body, has set up a date with the waitress. And he winds up going on a date with her the next day. Oh, that was so... Oh, that was heart-wrenching, wasn't it? I thought that was quite nice, actually. All that adolescent nervousness. They go to the TV tower and stuff. It doesn't go well, does it? Uh, But Mitsu's prepped his phone with things to do. I think they go to an art gallery as well or something, don't they? And at the end of the day, the waitress bids him farewell. But she's kind of figured out that Taki's not all that into her, actually. And she, 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 I think she says that she, he's got a crush on somebody else. Not that the two of them have admitted this at all yet. Mitsua has told Taki that by the time the date is over, he should be able to see the comet in the sky. And I think her idea was that it will be a romantic moment for the couple to look up. But he, he looks up and there is no comet in the sky, so he doesn't know what's going on, does he? Oh, uh, why? Was it a different time? Maybe, Paul, it was a different time. Right, well, I'm as confused as our characters are at this moment. Taki tries to call her on the phone. Finally, this is the first time he's dared do this. Uh, Somehow they've swapped phone numbers. He can't get through to her, and he explains that after that day, after that moment, the switches of bodies never happened again. And he starts drawing things that he's seen in the region that um, Mitsuo lived in sort of landscapes and scenes and stuff. Eventually, his obsession with this girl he was swapping places with gets so much that he winds up getting a train with his friends to go and see the waitress and his best mate, to go and see where Mitsuo lived. Yeah, can I just say this? Before that happens, have the messages like slowly disappeared from each other's phones? Yeah, well, there is a moment where he looks at his phone to try and sort of say, look, it really happened and, you know, here's all the messages. And they do disappear in front of his eyes from his phone, yeah. Wow. So maybe he is imagining it. They're having tourist fun, aren't they? Well, his friends are having tourist fun in the location where Mitsuo was supposed to, supposed to have lived. Now, he's only got his memory and his drawings from his memory to go on. So he shows the he locals and they're not really certain, but they stop off at one place and some guy says, yeah, I know that town. It's that. That's right. He says that's Itamori. That's Itamori, yeah. By the lake, the lake there. But still, he's no closer to the actual memory of where he drank the sake and stuff like that with the god. He can't quite find that location. That's really vital to him. The ramen shop owners say that that's the area where the comet came down, kind of thing. And when they go and visit this place, mm-hmm. it's all roped off and fenced. The place is in ruins. Everybody's dead. With trains and buildings and stuff. And all of this imagery. I mean, of course, you know, Japan has a a deep-seated national kind of trauma about this kind of stuff. But more recently, you know, the the tsunami that devastated Japan must... I think this was a strong inspiration for this film, wasn't it? Those tsunami pictures were just amazing and shocking, weren't they? Presumably that is the first time we've seen a tsunami kind of unfold live on television. Yeah, the Thai 2004 was only semi-recorded, wasn't it, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know. That's right. But again, terrifying too. But the the Japanese one just like so, so crazy because it's just so built up, you know, it's just such a populous area. So built up. But it unfolds before your eyes on television. I just, you know, couldn't believe what you were seeing. It was amazing and terrifying. It turns out that the comet disaster that destroyed this town, this village, was three years ago. Whoa. And that's when his phone messages disappear before his eyes when he's trying to confirm it kind of for himself. 
you know, Taki's wondering if he dreamed it all up. The waitress girl, I think she she called Miss Okudera. Something like that, yeah. I'm not quite, I can't quite remember. She notices that he's got a braided cord on his oh, wrist. Yeah. He wonders about that quote that he'd heard his, Mitsuo's granny say about unweaving time. He leaves a note for his friends in whatever place they were staying, mm. and he goes to Itomori, the crater kind of valley. Oh, he finds it this thing. time, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. And he so finds begins the shrine. a deeply trippy trip to the Saki spit, spit, spit Shrine. Yeah, because he finds where she had left her Saki. Sorry, what's the name of it? Kami? Uh, Ka- the name of that is, <laughs> is Kuchi Kamisaki. Kuchi Kamisaki. Kuchi Kusaki. Kuchi Kamisaki. So she describes it as part of her. Kind of yeah. half of her is in that Saki kind of thing. Which is not technically true, is it? I mean, it's just it's fermented. Rice sugars. It depends if you believe what, what, what grandma says about water becoming, you know, part of this kind of thing. But he drinks the sake and he falls in the cave. He's probably pissed, isn't he? On three-year-old. <laughs> three-year-old hallucinogenic sake. sake. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and as he falls or lies in the cave, he has a vision of a comet's tail. Uh, although it might be painted on the cave, actually, uh, on the cave roof. And he sees Mitsu's story... In his dream yeah, as well. Yeah. He sees the death of her mother, the estrangement of her father, her decisions and desires to go to Tokyo, uh, and to go to Tokyo to meet him, actually. With a haircut. She cuts her hair before she goes to. She cuts her hair to be more like him, doesn't she? And so he's being her, and then she wakes up. Like, he's being her, and as he's being her, she wakes up back as Taki. So they're switching bodies again, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So she finds herself, he finds himself in Mitsuo's body with short hair and she tries to go to her school friends to tell them all that they've got to save everybody because the comet's going to hit the village. That's right. She tells her friend to use the public address system. Somewhat cleverly, yeah. To warn everybody. I I like this little twist here. What's the twist? (laughs) Well, the fact that they bomb the power station... To take out... Yeah, she gets she gets her friend's boyfriend... Tessie, yeah. To, ...to bomb the power station or the substation. He's got explosives for his construction work, doesn't he? And on that basis, take out the, any, you know, anything that her father could say on whatever tannoys he has to override what she's saying, uh, and then get people to evacuate on the basis that there could be forest fires as a result of the power station or substation explosion. So really clever, well done. And she goes to see her dad, the mayor, to try to convince him. But I guess, obviously, he's not going to believe her. He doesn't believe yeah. her, you know. What, that you're swapping bodies with a boy three years in the future and he's telling you about a comet going to hit. Meanwhile, Mitsuo is in Taki's body and she's awakened and sees three years in the future, she can mm-hmm. see her destroyed town in front of her. That's so, right. You know, she suddenly realises what's going on here. So they're kind of jumping through time and jumping through bodies at the same time. It's quite incre- incredible. And we see what happens now uh, when Mitsuo tried to visit Tokyo on the day that Taki was having a date with, with the waitress. Ah. She spends the day in Tokyo hoping to see Taki. And she sees him on a train. By chance, yeah. Oh, no. It was, sorry, it was three years before that waitress thing, wasn't it? So he's younger and he's... Because at that time, he had no idea about her and none of this had happened for him. Whoa. So she's seeing the younger him on the train in her timeline. 
because he doesn't know that it's her, but she recognises him instantly. He asks for her name as she disembarks and also passes him the hair tie, which oh, we actually saw that at the beginning of the film. So it all, it all comes back together again. And he's worn it all that time. Oh. They wind up both on that crater rim just as dusk falls. And they've talked about the golden hour, the magic hour of twilight that happens at that time. And just at that time in the magic hour, they can both hear one another and sense one, one another. And they swap bodies back to normal. They, you know, sort of discuss things and have a moment together. And then he writes on her hand. I think he's suggesting they both write their name on each other's hands. He writes on her hand. While she's writing hers on his, they disappear. Yeah. And in moments, they've forgotten the names. Like like a dream, I suppose, when you wake up from a dream and it's immediately gone from your, your memory. Yes, yeah, so I was a bit confused. Do you mean to say on the, the like we're saying that the times don't necessarily, you know, their the inhabitation of each other's bodies don't happen at the same time. Yeah, but does it kind yes. of happen like chronologically? Obviously not. Like there's toing and throwing here. So what I'm saying is, when she went to Tokyo, yeah, ostensibly to yeah. see him, had she been before that in her own mind, or at least in her own experience, been helping him prepare for the date that she knew was going on? Or was yes, she had, oh, yeah. So, but that was happening. The date is happening three years in her future. She doesn't realize that. Neither of them realize the time difference, do they? Initially, oh, but when she goes to Tokyo, but she could read the messages and remember what she's done the time before when she was in the body, kind of thing. Is that right, or something? Yeah. Hmm. I was a bit un- unconvinced by all that. But when she goes to Tokyo, she's thinking, "I'll know him when I see him." She assumes he will think the same, but of course three years in the past, he hasn't experienced her at all. He hasn't been in her body by that uh-huh. point. So they're not in a habit. So she's meeting a, a younger tacky. Right. Clearly left an impression because he kept that braid on his wrist for three years or more. I see. It's a very sweet story, isn't it? She's now rushing back to her dad. She's back in her own body, in her own time. She's rushing back to her dad to try and convince him, sort of, finally. She... Falls off a bike, I think, and she's trying to remember Taki's name. She can't, and she opens her hand, hoping to see that it's reminded her by writing it. And he's written "I love you" on it, Aww. not his name. And she's, you know, she she's depressed because it doesn't help her remember him. We then see a meteorite hit, and maybe maybe they failed. Who knows? And Taki, meanwhile, he's awaking in his own time. By the lake. Meeting up with his uh, head, mis- head not headmistress, head waitress again. Is that right? Yeah, well, his friends were still in, in that area, weren't they? And he picks up his life, always feeling like he's been missing something, but not really remembering. Those dreams have gone from him now. Five years later, he's looking for a job. He meets up with that waitress again, but yeah. I think we see that she's married to someone else. Yeah, there's Some a lovely moment friends. where they go to a bridge and she continues and he doesn't. Yeah, that's like... Nice little symbolic moments with the with the environment there. You know. But he recalls now the terrible incident with the comet that happened now eight years ago, I suppose, where most of the residents, by luck, were out of the impact zone. But he can't recall why he was interested in that town anymore. And he's in a cafe, and he overhears Tashi, the guy you mentioned from that little village, and his girlfriend are in the cafe mm. uh, discussing their wedding. 
And he kind of knows that he knows them, but he doesn't understand why he knows them, because obviously Taki's never met them in real, only when he was in Mitsuo's body. Yeah. And then, of course, it's in the snow, it's snowing in Tokyo, and he sees a woman with a red cord in her hair, and they pause, passing on the bridge. And they see each other on separate trains, and he instantly recognises, they both instantly recognise one another, window to window kind of thing. And they both obviously jump off the trains and they meet on a staircase. They pass one another and then they sort of turn around and and ask, both at the same time, they both ask your name. Oh, and that's it. So we're assuming a happy ending here, aren't we? Yeah. Now, the director, again, was accused. Copping out. It was said that in his original draft of the script, he'd had them not hooking up, passing one another like ships in the night but not recognising one another and going on with their lives. But he's refuted that, and he's provided like text messages saying how he wanted the ending to be from you know early stages of the production process. So I think this was, in fact, always supposed to be a happy ending. Oh. And we assume, yeah, it must be a happy romance for them. Because it, it certainly... I think it sort of does kind of live up to its uh, billing as one of the, the sweetest love stories, doesn't it? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, it's almost cloying, but it's so sweet <laughs> and it's so corny yeah. and it's so made for its audience. Maybe in quite a cynical way, but at the same time, it's actually really convincing as a love story. You know, it is really sweet and quite moving. I, I don't like being made to cry by movies. It's the second movie that's made me cry in two <laughs> weeks. So. Yeah, it was quite touching, actually. So it was. There's lots to recommend it, isn't there? I mean... Visually stunning, like we said. Absolutely beautiful movie. Observational detail, you know, I think this is a great thing about Japanese anime. It's like the atmosphere just by the level of detail, you know, and the everyday observation that goes into their drawings is just fabulous, you know. Uh, the criticisms are really, again, about sexual politics of, you know, gender stereotypes and stuff, aren't they? Yeah. So there was one point, there's one point where uh, Tessie, you know, the boyfriend of our female protagonist's best friend. And Taki, who's actually in the body of our female protagonist, they sort of, you know, they sort of rabbit punch each other. And uh, Tessie says, you're, you're a woman now of marriageable age. Stop mucking around with me, you know. So I think perhaps in the context of, you know, how particularly women are supposed to, and men as well in Japan, are supposed to carry themselves with decorum towards the other sex, even though they're teenagers. I think, therefore, there's maybe... It's not necessarily that they're confirming these gender stereotypes. It's just the expectations for how you behave according to gender in Japan are so strong anyway that it would be an area of interest if you jump into somebody else's body. So I'm not making an excuse, but I can see, however, you know, maybe from you know a native Japanese perspective that they're not they're just explaining exploring things as they currently are, kind of thing. Mitsuha, it's clear she doesn't really get on with the traditional aspects of her life. So not just gender stereotypes and traditional roles, but also the Shinto Buddhist stuff that her grand- granny is interested mm-hmm. in. She only does it, I think, because you know she wants to do Frisaki. stuff for her granny. <laughs> Free sake, yeah. She really wants to get out and go to Tokyo, doesn't she? She's more. She's got kind of more metropolitan aspirations, so she's not into all of that traditionalist stuff. So maybe part of the film is supposed to be 
her bucking against some of that stuff. But I was impressed how it could remain so cutesy and yet so wholesome and so moving. I was quite moved by this at times. So I think for that, that's that's an accomplishment that's quite difficult to achieve technically, isn't it? Best give this some scores then. Okay. What do you think? Can we start with animation? Uh, it has to yeah. be a 10. Okay. It's brilliant. I won't go to 10. Seems wrong to go to 10. I'll go to a 9, though, yeah. It, it Do you is not find something stunning, though? Like the detail and the... Oh, yeah, and absolutely, yeah. The, it's definitely 9-worthy. I mean, it's, not, it's not just the drawings. It's the way that stuff comes in and out of focus, and it's just, yeah, fabulous. It's really, really good. Quite often a very painterly experience. It is, it? yeah. The yeah. whole thing. Okay, what about the weird timeline, time time travel plot? Unexpected. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that. Quite strong, I think. An old-fashioned kind of body swap rom-com type thing. Uh, no, we get real time travel, saving the world from comets, kind of. And the potential that's held for a long time that they, you know that it's not a happy ending. I thought they'd be really good to hold on to that tragic ending, presumed to tragic ending for quite some time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a nice twist in a way. And you know, this is not a fanciful. Well, perhaps we should have a science score. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'll go eight here. Yeah, I, I mean, I was going to score it five or six of plot, but actually, I think it's more of a seven. Oh. Yeah. Well, Paul, don't let me talk you out of a criticism. No, what, no. What do you think was wrong Nothing. with it? Nothing. No, no. I, I mean, because I've seen it before, you see, so I was kind of remembering how oh. it was. But actually, watching it with some level of attention concentration, I find that it's actually quite sound and engaging and well-thought-out plot that so, has more to it than it suggests, actually. Were you able to understand the Japanese spoken in this no, film? No, You're not, no. You won't pick it up. Maybe 15 years ago, but not anymore, no. What else do we need to do? I could understand it. Should we do science? Ikidekimasu and that kind of thing, stuff. Uh, I mean. What does that mean? Let's go. Ikidekimasu. <laughs> or something like that. Or let's see. I can't remember which one it is. So, should we do the science? Yeah! Or... I mean... <sighs> Listen, <sighs> meteors, comets can really destroy build- uh, villages and towns and cities and the whole planets even so nothing wrong with that nope not quite sure how I feel about swapping souls with somebody over over three years I need to get something clear um, when he was yeah. a young high schooler he was going forward to her later years or Cor- backwards correct to her, he was going forward to her later years forward. when she yeah. was a young high schooler she was going forward to his later years also is that right yeah no sorry hang on we got that wrong he was going back to her younger years, earlier years. She was going forward to his later years. That should have been more explicit, I think. That's kind of the twist that they then cover, isn't it? They so do, they but they don't really point it out. But I suppose we're on two D two. You're not projecting something in the air, pointing it, or you know, explaining it with some time diagrams and Feynman diagrams. Philosophy of time here. If all time, past, present, and future exists, there's nothing stopping you potentially visiting mentally. A different time, mm-hmm. past or future. That's fine, I suppose, from that point of view. So, yeah. So I've got no problems. But I, the exposition, I thought, was too kind of subtly interlaid with developments in the dialogue and in the plot. So for that, for science, I'm going to score it to 6.5. I'm not convinced a comet would break up its tail and, you know, produce a gigantic comet like that. You think that's the unbelievable part about this story? <laughs> the comet breaking up. <laughs> No, I liked right, some of the psychological portrayals. I thought, you know, the fact that they didn't really know if they were to believe it was a dream or not, you know, 
I thought some of that was yeah. really quite nicely done. That's nice, just mm. nicely well observed. So it it's worth an eight. It's got to be marked down for a bit of Shinto Buddhist claptrap tomfoolery. Other than that, you know, there's a lot there's a lot going for the science here. Uh-huh. What do you think about the characterisation? We can't do acting. But the cutesy voice is cutesy enough for you. You can do acting, but it's difficult to judge in a language other than your own, isn't it? I thought but they were convincing still. characters. I'm going to score them a seven and a half for that. Convincing characters. Did you understand why the father was estranged and threw himself into his career? The backstory. The backstory reveal that he got when he was when our hero Taki was temporarily hurt and found out about her younger life. Uh, I don't know. No, he left his wife. And no, he didn't leave his wife. His wife died. Oh, his wife died. But he obviously didn't look after the two daughters. His two daughters. He left those two his. Granny or Granny stops him from taking them. I don't know. And then he threw himself into his political career. Seemed not to be all that pleasant, did he? A bit, bit of a broadly drawn character. Yeah, so, should have... in summary, I'll give it an eight. Okay. I'll give it an eight. So uh, overall, I'm gonna score this a, a very healthy uh, eight out of ten. It is an eight. Yeah, yeah I agree. A beautiful film. Really stunning. I imagine you've got a huge screen at home. Get this on HD. It must look absolutely fabulous. And for you, on watching on your phone or something? No, the- Richard. Okay. My phone is 3,000 by 2,000 pixels. Right. Okay. Do you put it in a special viewer so it's really close to your eyes? Well, if you think about, you know, a traditional 40-inch TV that you're seeing 10 feet I away, know. Compare yeah, that to looking at a phone that's two feet away from you. You actually see more detail on your phone, Richard. Yeah. Can I just okay. poo-poo Thanks. your comments there? Sorry for ever criticising you. But actually, viewing habits. <laughs> actually, I watch it on my laptop, which is about four thousand by two thousand six hundred. And again, okay. I think watching from about so, three feet away that will give me a visual acuity um, viewing experience, <laughs> taking up a larger field of view than you would do if you're watching, say, a fifty-inch television from maybe twelve. I, I'm sure there's a diagram you could draw about the angle subtended by each pixel, Paul. Why don't you get on that for next week? And next week, what movie are you going to watch on your your tiny screen? <laughs> Paul, am I giving you options? Are you uh, giving me options? I'm just thinking about how to respond to you, Extreme Rumor. <laughs> uh, after I've explained to you how you're wrong, how you, you know, your brain doesn't work about these things. Uh, happy Death Day, number one. Two, Megan. Three, something I can't quite read, but I think it says Skinner. Skinnerink. That's the one I put on there the other week. But I've heard Skinnamarink is really bad and people have walked out of the cinema during it. I want to see Megan, but you know what? Can I just say something? It's too expensive. It's £16. Pulls the cheapskate. And it's not in the spirit of drive-by cinema, really, unless we're going to the cinema. We're all about lockdown movies you can watch on Netflix. On your phone. Or for low price on your phone whilst you're delivering for Uber. So let's, let's put Megan back on the back burner and let's go for Happy Death Day. Okay. Happy Death Day? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Before I say that, the City of Stone, Matera, in Italy, actually did have a comic shower on Valentine's Day. How romantic. When? This Valentine's Day had just gone. Wow. If you'd That's... look beyond your HDTV and, you know, go onto the internet, <laughs> find out some things about the real out world. Out in the big wide world where there's <laughs> turned off to David Borealis happening. <laughs> Ooh, look at me, David Attenborough. Does it look good on my 18-inch TV? <laughs> I know. Look, I know TVs are old hat. Nobody buys them anymore because 
the youngins watch everything on their phone, don't they, probably? Or projectors. Or projectors that get bought for you by people trying to get in your pants. <laughs> Until the next time, the movie is Happy Death Day. Thank you for listening. See you on the next one. Ciao for now. Thank you.